back into our series. Last week we began the series, Should I Quit My Job? Now, if you were here last week, you probably very quickly realized we're not actually going to get you a yes or no answer to that question just by going through that series. Um, But despite that, the reason we began this series is because of all the things that are happening in our world over the past couple years. Inevitably, many of us are asking that kind of question. Many of you are currently asking that or have asked that. Things like lack of lack of worker in the tra- lack of workers in the trades, demands on employees because of lo- lack of proper staffing, developments of artificial intelligence, the rise of co- co- the rising cost of college education, remote work, travel restrictions, supply chain issues are just a few factors that we see that change the way that we are experiencing work. I would guess that many of you have gone to a store or a restaurant and have experienced the burdens on employees that are making them ask this kind of question. Right, experiencing a wait staff who just doesn't have enough people to keep up with the demands of people who aren't happy they're not getting their food. Or the grocery store workers who are trying to do what they do, but just don't have the resources to do it. And which raises the question for many people, should I do this? And then we add to that, that in our work, most of us feel like we have to do the work. We need the paycheck. We need to work in order to live, which isn't a bad reason to keep your job. Right? That's a valuable thing to do. It's a benefit to your family. Yet at the same time, we also understand that for many of us, work is more than just a paycheck. That it's not just about what we do during the week so we can live. We want more than that. We want significance and meaning. And so what do we do with that? And in our world, which is more stressed out and anxious than ever before, which is primarily driven by the amount and pace of change in our world, it's inevitable that we are asking hard questions about work. Whether that's should I quit my job or is this the right fit? Am I being valued? What do I want to do with the rest of my life? All of these are valid questions that I think the Bible can help us think about. Now, last week, to begin to give ourselves a framework to think about this, we went to the beginning in order to be reminded that work is a gift, not a curse. Now, this is interesting because in Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation of the world, the way that work is described is work actually comes before the fall. Now, this actually stands in contrast to other creation myths in the ancient Near East at that time. The primary way that work was seen at the time of the creation of Genesis... Um, At the time of that writing, all the competing narratives would suggest that the gods were angry. Therefore, they wanted to offload their work and create human savages to do the work for them so they didn't have to. That was the predominant mindset at the time the Israelites were studying and memorizing the Hebrew scriptures. And so then as they studied and learned Genesis, what they found was something far different about dignity and the value of work. Because they learned that the way that their God worked, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God they referred to as Yahweh, that they were made in his image. And so they were creative because he was creative. They wanted to design and cultivate because he did. They served because he did. And so God, the musical, creative, shepherd, poetry-making God, made them in his image and then invited them to do work, not because he didn't want to, but because work is significant, because work is valuable, because work is good. And so that work, that gift, is an opportunity then for humanity, for Adam and Eve, to serve, to serve the, the creation, 
to serve the animals, to serve each other, to serve God. And in it, it was an act of cultivation where they would create, where they would make something new in the garden. Now what happened though is Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters the picture. It causes irreversible damage to the way you and I experience work. And because of that, many of us tend to think of work more as a curse, which is more like the way the ancient Near East thought of work than the way that God thought of work. And the problem is, for humanity all throughout history, as well as many of our own experiences, when we view work as curse, we will run away from it. The solution to the problem will be to get away from the work. No matter how painful it is, the goal would be to stop, to be done, to not have to do it, to offload it to somebody else. That becomes the perspective if work is bad. If work is bad, don't do it. Now today, I want to build on that understanding, though, by giving a different problem. Because if on one hand we run away from work, there can be an, an alternative temptation that leads to us elevating work beyond the point that it should be. Of making work more significant than it ought to be. See, if we view work as worth, we will run to it. We will run into the work hoping to get from our work some sense of meaning that we don't find somewhere else. We will be hoping that work can help tell us and answer the question, who are we? It can help us feel valuable and worthwhile. It can answer some, uh, for us some difficult questions about our own identity. Now last week we learned in Genesis 2 that work was meant to be an act of service and an act of cultivation. That we serve others, we serve God, we serve our family, we serve our neighbors, and we are creating something new. Whether that be in creating a product, and whether that be in creating art or forming another person into the likeness of Jesus. That both of those happen in our work. The temptation though, then when we misplace the value of work, is there is a shift in those areas. See what happens is work often shifts from serving someone else to serving ourselves. The goal then of our work comes, becomes, what do I get out of this? Not of who, who benefits by the good that I'm doing, but what do I get? And that's really the human temptation, isn't it, in all of our life, to be self-serving, to be selfish. It's the reason we make bad decisions. The reason we often hurt other people, because we're only looking out for ourselves in those moments. And so often in work, what happens is we begin to shift our own desires in order to, what do I want? What do I want people to think of me? What, what makes me feel valuable? What, what is the position I deserve? And then not only does that happen, but what we are cultivating and creating changes. Because what happens then is work shifts to cultivating an identity for ourselves. That we begin to use our work to determine how we see ourselves. And many of you have already experienced this. Because many of you have met somebody and you have asked, who are you? And then what do you ask next? What do you do? Right? Because, because what happens for so many of us, for so many of us, the primary way we see ourselves and other people, we ask their name and their job. As though that is the most important thing that makes a person them. This is the same temptation that we see throughout the scriptures. And so I want to go to Genesis 11 for how we can see this playing out in the human story. Now it's interesting because there is a progression in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, work is good. 
Genesis 3, sin enters, and now there is a curse. And work isn't the curse, but it is impacted by the curse. By Genesis 4, sin has, has caused so much damage to relationships that there has been death. There's been death by murder. There's also technological advancement that is now allowing human beings to have power and wealth because of the new technology that they have, which then leads us to more technological advancement in order for, for the human, human beings to decide to do a building project that they can attach some of their own sense of worth and value to. And so I want to read just a few verses in Genesis 11 for us uh, about that and just highlight a couple phrases and verses in here. Beginning in verse 2. It says this, As the men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, I want to highlight a couple of phrases that are important here, which if, if, you, if you want to read more on this subject, there's an incredible book um, by a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. And so if you want to read and study about some, some more of these kind of ideas, he unpacks a ton of different theological insights into how we think about our work. But I want to highlight a couple phrases in here. The first phrase that gets used in verse 3, it says, they said that to each other, come let us make bricks, and bake them thoroughly. They use bricks instead of stone. Now, this is important because it's actually highlighting technological innovation at the time of this building. It's an advancement in building methods. Previously, they had to use stone. Now, because of innovation and creativity, because of a cultivation, they have a new way that they can build, and they can build faster. They are more efficient in their work. They can build bigger and better. And people, if they do the work well, will see and be impressed with the technological innovations they have. And not unlike our own experiences, New technology leads to trying to build an experiment with those ideas. They try to see, like, is this going to work? What, are we gonna be, what is the possibility? And some of those experiments fail, and some of those experiments, they realize the possibilities. Now, what's really interesting for them, there is also a spiritual component that we see evident because they're trying to build a tower to the heavens. Like, for them, this is not just about them using the technology. They have a spiritual goal in mind. They have a goal that's attached to how they understand themselves as human beings. And so with that technological advancement, that what they can do, the power they might find, the buildings they might make has greatly changed. But also with that comes incredible danger, which is not all that different than our own experience of any technological advancement, is it? For example, a technological advancement like social media can dramatically change the way a business operates in some very good ways. Businesses have marketing opportunities that in this generation they never had before. They can actually do some cost-benefit analysis and know exactly what the return is on how much money they spent and know who is seeing their advertisements and, and know things about those people, about those advertisements and who's responding well to those. Businesses can better understand than ever before some analytics about what is best for the business. They also can reach people they never could before. That we live in a new global economy because of technology that people can, we can sell things all across the world and we can do business and have networking relationships with people all around the world. That I can live in Michigan and be networked with somebody who lives on another continent and another time zone and we can meet and we can talk and we can work together for the common good. 
Businesses can build personal relationships with people. Where before they were behind a wall that nobody could reach, there is now an opportunity for personal interaction because of social media. It also gives other people opportunities for influence that they couldn't have before because there were systems and gatekeepers that didn't allow certain people to have a voice that they now have because of technology. Incredibly valuable advancements in technology, but we also know it can cause a lot of damage, can it? Social media arguably is increasing anxiety, not reducing it. Technology companies have actually revealed, but also tried to keep hidden, but have been revealing and studying that what they're seeing is, is the self-image issues particularly created in teenagers by this technology is incredibly damaging. It creates a false perception of other people because they can put online a, a, a version of their life that runs through a filter and then it also then in turn creates self-image issues we have for ourselves. The technology is good, but it also can be used in some ways that really aren't helpful, in ways that hurt and damage our own understanding of ourselves. But their problem isn't ultimately with the innovation, it's what they're trying to get from that innovation which I would suggest is the same thing that often happens with our own innovations. Because in any technological advancement, what we will do is what they did. We will use that advancement to help clarify for ourselves and better understand who we are. The problem is when we use the technology to better understand who we are and we look for that and what somebody else says or thinks, we miss who God says we are. And so in Genesis chapter 11, they're using the, the bricks in order to build. And it says that they want, with their work, that they want to do it so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's their motivation, a name. Now in the Hebrew scriptures, names are a big deal. Where the goal in the Hebrew scriptures isn't just like come up with a unique name that no one's ever used. It's a name as a person's identity. That the name would define the trajectory of a child and who that child is and who God, how God sees them. A name is incredibly important. And so when the text says that they want to build a name for themselves, what it's telling us is they are trying to build an identity for themselves. They're trying to understand who they are based on their achievements in that moment. There are only two ways you can have a name. Someone gives you a name or you make a name for yourself. That's the choice. For them, they're trying to come, they've come to the conclusion that the best way for them to have a name is for them to build and to create that name, for them to create an image, an understanding of themselves. The goal is to make a name, which means building wealth and power and fame, that when people see the tower, it would communicate something about the talents and the skills of the builders. With your work, you have the same choice. Do you do your work, whether that be paid work, volunteer work, the work of parenting, when you do your work, are you doing that work to make a name for yourself? Or are you receiving that name from God? Now here's what makes that so hard. The world around us will tell us that building that name for yourself is the best way to do it. Think about it. What, what, the build, building a name for yourself, that's how we're describing using this. The rest of the world just calls that branding. 
Right? Isn't that essentially what it is? Like you, you hustle, you work in order to build a brand and image for yourself. And you determine, how, you determine how do you create this image that people are gonna like. And so if people like it, you keep doing it. If people don't like it, you change the way you present yourself so that you get more affirmations, more likes, more shares, whatever it is. You create this image of yourself that makes you feel better about yourself. And in the workplace, the same thing happens. But like your, your boss isn't going to tell you like, you know what, you've really misaligned your values and you're just working way too hard. Like that's not going to happen. Like they, your, your boss will celebrate if you, if you are worshiping your work. They're going to they're gonna say, man, you, you've been working so hard. They don't care that you've misplaced your value and you're working so hard because you see that work as everything. They don't care about that. The culture around you, right? What do they tell you when you're interviewed? Like, t- tell them that, like, you just work too hard. Like, the, the culture around us celebrates us finding our identity in our work. If you're a high schooler, you really know this is true because what happens when you hit around senior year? The, people start telling you, you need to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. I don't know about you, but when I was 17 or 18 year old, old I, didn't, I could not make a decision for the rest of my life. There are certain parts that I figured out, but not the rest of my life. The reason that we encourage teenagers to figure out the rest of their life when they are 17 or 18 year old is because we've misplaced the value of work. Because as adults, we've said work is the most important defining feature of who a person is. And we've done a disservice to our teenagers. We need to change that kind of conversation because work is not the place where worth comes from. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when us finding our worth from our work is the thing that is celebrated? As human beings created in the image of God, we were created to see work as something significant and having meaning. That's why the enemy uses the temptations of this, because we can confuse meaning with identity and worth. And work is meant to be meaningful. It is meant to be valuable. It's not meant to be everything. Solomon in Ecclesiastes highlights the way he observes work because of his own experiences. And he says, I saw that, that all labor and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, so much of what you can see when you look at the workplace is just people envious of other people. People envious of what they have. People envious of their position, their authority, their influence, their power. The way that people talk about them or look at them. It's envy and that often drives our own pursuits, our own desires. And Solomon says, you're chasing after wind. You're not going to find it. Now, Now I want to talk to men for a minute here being that it is Father's Day, and this isn't only true of men, but on Father's Day, I want to specifically speak to men for a moment about where you find your worth. Men, especially fathers, the way you see yourself will shape how your children see themselves. Your understanding of your own worth will shape the faith and the worth of the next generation. And so know that you determining how you see yourself has a huge impact on your kids. And if you want your kids not to derive their worth from what their friends say about them or their performance in school or on the field, that's going to happen by them watching you and where you get your sense of worth from. 
Because for all of us, we have a choice. As men, as women, as parents, as teenagers, you can find your worth in who Jesus says you are and bring that into your work, or you can find your worth in your work and let that shape how you see yourself. Those are the options. Those are the challenges. And so there are two big risks when it comes to how we find our worth and when we attach that to our work. The first one that I want to highlight is when your worth is tied to your work, the first risk is that your source of worth can easily be robbed. Right, right, think, think about this. Is because if, if all of your identity and worth and value is wrapped up in what, what you do, what does that then say when what you do changes? What happens then when work gets difficult or you lose a job or you no longer like the job, you get a new boss, the world around you changes and gets more difficult. If, the, if your job is the source of your worth, when all that changes, you now change the way you see yourself and understand yourself and how, you, how, how valuable you are. As a parent, the same thing happens. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you will experience this. But when your worth is attached to your role and calling as a parent, what happens then when your kids don't need you the way they once needed you? When your kids move out, is the reason that we wrestle with that and that becomes so challenging. And I say this as somebody who has not experienced this and I know it will wreck me. Why? Because so much of my worth gets wrapped up in how my kids see me as dad. And that happens, though, because we misplace where our worth actually comes from. And the thing that is more valuable to our kids, to our companies, to our world, is when we know our worth outside of those things and bring that worth into it. We actually make our work more valuable by bringing our worth into it. That you actually offer more value to your family by knowing your worth than by getting your worth from it. That you actually bring more value to your organization by knowing your worth and bringing that into your organization than by getting your worth from it. We can miss the value easily that we might add by looking for work in the wrong place. See, your job as a parent isn't to be the kind of parent that all the books say you should be. And there are some amazing parenting resources, more than exist now than ever before, and they're really, really helpful. But God didn't make you to be the parent that the book says you to be. He, he gave your kids you to be their parent. You are exactly the parent your kids need you to be. And when you know that, when you know who God made you to be and you offer that to your kids, it is better than any expert might tell you what you should do for your kid. There are thousands of leadership books you could read about how to be a business leader, how to lead a team, how to lead an organization, how to be innovative or creative or any of those things. But if we all did what those books say, we would all be exactly the same and every organization would look exactly the same because you could say or it all should look exactly like fits in this box. And again, there are some principles and things that are valuable in that, but the best thing that you can do in your work is know uniquely who God says you are and ask, how do I then, knowing that, bring that into the work that I do? See, as they're building the tower in Genesis 11, they make these same mistakes. They make it as individuals trying to accumulate for themselves power and wealth and prestige attached to this building. They're also doing this as a, a community. 
right? It can happen. We can derive an identity that because we're on that team or because we're in this organization or we work for them, that they find a group identity because they are the people that together built that. But our work was never meant to be worth. Our work was always meant to be worship. And so are you worshiping your work? Or are you worshiping with your work? The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 describes it so well when he talks about what a spiritual act of worship looks like. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In other words, in view of the entirety of who God is and what he's done for you. In view of who God says you are. The same God who says, I've knit you together in your mother's womb. The same God who says, I know exactly what makes you my child and what makes you different from my other children. The same God who says, I search you and know your thoughts. Who knows your thoughts before you think them because he knows you that well. The same God who says, if you want to know your worth, know that you're worth dying for. And that I forgive every sin and that I've written a story and a future for you. The God who's done all of that, Paul says, in view of that, that God's love and mercy, knowing that you are seen and you are loved and you are already chosen. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, he's saying, my goal for you in worship is not for you to make an offering like do the work and then, then just write a paycheck or give online and then like that's your offering. Like, Paul's like, I don't, Paul's like, God doesn't need your money. He's saying, I want you to offer your body for Paul as offer all of yourself, all of who God made you to be, all of your personality, all of who you are, your gifts, your personalities, your talents, everything about you, bring that into your work. And then Paul says that is holy and pleasing to God, not because now God is finally approving to you, but because God is the kind of dad who's cheering you on. The kind of father who is just cheering and applauding because he gets to see the joy of his kid living out who he meant them to be. This, he says, is your spiritual act of worship. That your work is meant to be that. Your work, as you go to school, as you do your job, as you raise kids, that work is an act of worship. And so he says, so do not conform to the pattern of this world. Because the pattern of this world will not see work this way. This is not the way most of the world wants to disciple you into being a good employee. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed. Meaning, allow God to change you. You're, you're not going to change yourself, but allow God to do the work of making you who God wants you to be by the renewing of your mind. Allow God to change the way you see yourself as he speaks to you who he says you are. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Then you'll be able to better understand what God wants for you in your work, in your family. Because maybe for some of you, as you better know who God says you are, you'll be able to better answer the question of knowing that, knowing I am God's chosen, knowing he says this about who I am, then maybe I can answer the question, is this the right job? Or how do I serve in this job or in this community knowing this is who God says I am and this is who God wired me to be? It says this, then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, his good pleasing and perfect will. 
And so I want to give us an opportunity to do this. How do we do this with our work? How we fight that temptation to find our worth in work? Now, last week, we worked through this grid that I just want to remind you of. If you weren't here last week, um, you can watch, watch last week's service online as well as download this as a resource. And this was meant to be a tool for you to think about your current situation, your work, your volunteer work, whatever it might be, that asks these, two, these, these different questions in order to determine, all right, what, what is good about how we understand work? How is work good and who we are serving and what we're cultivating? And then what are the points of pain in our work? This week, I want to move and spend time in the presence of God, not just evaluating our work, but understanding ourselves. I want us to use these three phrases that the Apostle Paul uses to better understand who God made us be. The first being, be transformed. This week, I want you to ask God the question, what needs to change? What needs to be changed in my own life? God, what do you see in me that doesn't align with what you want for me? Where has my heart become selfish? Where have I tried to make work an opportunity to build my own worth, to make a name for myself? Where has my title or money become the main thing? Where have I missed who you say that I am? Now, this is what repentance is. Like, I don't know if you realize it, but asking God what needs to change, God bringing those mind, and you agreeing with God, that's called confession. And then asking God to do the work to change you by his power through his death and resurrection. Repentance just means a change. It's a 180. So we reveal the sin and then ask God to make the change, to help us to walk differently. And then after we ask the questions about transformation, Paul encourages us to renew our minds. The transformation doesn't happen by willpower. And the willpower matters, it's important because we should change behavior. But at the end of the day, the renewing happens by what God is speaking to us through his word and prayer and meditation. Now, what I love about this language is twofold. One, what, what happens in our mind shapes our hearts and our behavior and how we live out our act of worship. It's also incredibly fascinating because neuroscience is just catching up to what Paul says in Romans 12. Because what neuroscientists are also realizing that there's this thing called neuroplasticity. And through mindful practices, particularly prayer and worship, we are actually rewiring the neurotransmitters in our brain that change the way we think. So the negative thought patterns that you have about yourself, about who you are, how, how bad of a person you are, that in prayer and worship and giving those things to Jesus and then hearing the truth that God speaks over you, it actually changes how you understand yourself. That as you bring your anxious thoughts to God and your fears to God in prayer and meditation, that God literally is rewiring your brain to think different thoughts, thoughts that run to his truth instead of the things that you are afraid of. And so that renewing of the mind transforms us. And that happens as we sit in the presence of God, reading and studying the scriptures, praying and listening to Jesus. And in those things, asking God to show us, who do you say that I am? To listen for what God calls us, the name that he gives us. Because in order for you to offer your body as a living sacrifice, you need to know who you really are. And then as you discover who Jesus says you are, then you can test God's will. And you ask the question, God, how do I live it out? In this job, in this situation, at this time, at this moment. 
after knowing who God says you are, after having spent time with Jesus, then you test God, is this the next step? Is this what you have for me? You invite a community of other followers of Jesus into how you walk that out. Why? To test God's will and to know as you walk that out. That your worth isn't based on the work that you're doing. But it begins with the voice of God. Knowing that God is not now suddenly pleased with you, that he's already approved of you. And the joy he finds in that moment is the joy a father has seen that you are walking in who he made you to be. As we close, I want to invite us to walk through those three things together as an opportunity to invite God to speak, to show us what needs to change about the way we see ourselves, as well as to lead us in a time of confession, to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, and then at the end I will share some words, and and then we will um, prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. God, we thank you that you are a loving Father. That you are a father who knows us, who calls us by name. That you have created us, that you have knit us together in our mother's wombs. And we come before you, God, asking that you would speak to us. That through your word, through the power of your spirit, that you would tell us the things that we need to hear. Jesus, we ask that you would transform us. And that, Jesus, as we ask for that transformation, we pray that you would show us in our hearts and our minds the things that need to change. Jesus, would you show us the areas of our life where we've misplaced our worth? Would you speak to us the lies we believe about where that worth comes from? Jesus, would you show us where the way we live falls short of what you want? Jesus, as we hear those things, we confess those to you. As we hear them, we agree that this is not who you made us to be, that this is not the source of our worth. And so we give that to you, Jesus. Change us. Set us on a new path. And Jesus, we pray that we are transformed as you renew our mind. And so we invite you to do just that, to change the way that we think. Jesus, would you show us how you see us? Father, would you show us why you're proud of us? Jesus, would you speak to us? Who do you say that I am?
God, I pray that in the truth that you speak to us, that we would be able to walk in worship as we live that out, as we test your will, as we live faithful to who you say we are, to do what is right and to do what is good, to do what is holy. The promise of Jesus to each and every one of you is that your sins are forgiven. He loves you. He forgives you. God, your heavenly father, says to you, you are his son. You are his daughter. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.